It's hard to uh, get our head into the original context of this parable and how it would have been perceived by Jesus' first listeners. Because for us, Pharisees are always, always the bad guys, aren't they? Even if you've not been to church very much, like you maybe you remember a little bit of Sunday school or maybe you went to a church school or something. And even in common language, Pharisee is uh, a negative word. So we know they're the bad guys. So when you get a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple, you're already thinking, oh, he's the bad guy, <laughs> the Pharisee. And tax collector, well, that takes a bit of translation, doesn't it? Because, I mean, nobody likes the tax collector, but like we don't think of them as the bad guys. But that's really how they, Jesus' first listeners would have heard this. They would have been expecting a very different ending to the parable. So the Pharisee would have seen, been seen as a very upright admirable, uh, kind of the pinnacle of, uh, of, of righteousness and uprightness in the community. And the tax collector was uh, morally depraved and so, a social outcast, really, and an enemy of people. He worked for the Romans. So, you know, it's very hard for us to, to kind of get into that mindset and not kind of prejudge the outcome. And I think the surprise of the parable is part of its power. So it's helpful for us just to kind of get into that a little bit. So I was trying to think of a modern-day analogy. I haven't come up with anything neat, but I guess you could do something like um, imagine um, a barrister in a wig. Right? The problem is we don't have any more people we trust or admire in our culture, do we? Like, we're cynical about everyone. So I was literally, this took me the longest part of my sermon, trying to think of an example of someone that everyone admires. Not a judge. No, they're all weird. Not a politician. Definitely not that. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't have people we admire. But I was thinking, like, just some. A pastor. No, no, well, not in popular culture, because we're all like televangelists or, you know, whatever. So, um, but, so imagine a, a barrister in a wig and a guy who's like a stereotypical Irish traveller. How about that? Is that okay? They both walk into a courtroom together. That's the setup Jesus is going for. And the barrister is well-dressed and he's eloquent and he's a family man, and he's never been convicted of a crime, and the traveller is uh, inarticulate, and you barely can understand what he's saying. And, and it, you, the whole thing plays out, and, and you're supposed to... Uh, maybe the barrister is, is questioning the traveller in the dock or something like that. And then the big reveal is that the traveller, even though he's, he doesn't make a good defence, he's clumsy with his answers, all that sort of thing, he's the one who's innocent, and the barrister is guilty. That's something of the surprise Jesus is trying to pull off here. Is that helpful? There is that, and again, even in the language used, um, the Pharisee's prayer, which to us immediately sounds self-righteous. I think someone even chuckled as I was reading it out. Um, it wouldn't have sounded absurd or self-righteous immediately to the people who were first listening to it. This was a good prayer. I obey the law. That was what was expected. I go further than obeying the law. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything I get, not just a li- not just some of the things I have as prescribed by God's law, but I tithe everything. And I thank God that I'm not like this man, this man, this man. You, you know, there are prayers that are literally written like that. Not with the intention Jesus is, is, is highlighting here, but there are prayers. Lord, I thank you that you did not make me such and such. And the tax collector's prayer, which we kind of admire instinctively, because culturally we love honesty and transparency and so on, is clumsy. It's, it's, it's almost blasphemous. He, he said, when he says, God have mercy on me, he uses the word, he uses the Greek version of the Jewish word, kippur, which is really, you should only use that in, in relation to the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. So when he cries out, God have mercy on me, it is a cry from the depths of his heart, but it's, 
it's really, I mean, to have someone standing on the outer court about himself using this word, Lord, have mercy on me, which was reserved for this one special type of mercy that God extended to everyone. You know, he's, he's clumsy, he's, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's out of place, he's out of sorts, people have been looking at him, what are you doing here? They would have assumed if he was there for any good reason, it was, it was well, any reason, it was maybe to make a show or, you know, he had been compelled to be there somehow. There's a goodie and a bad, and a baddie in this um, story. <laughs> so that's, that's helpful for us to know how Jesus is setting it up as he tells the story. What is the purpose of the parable? Well, like last week, this is one of the few occasions where the Bible of Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us exactly why Jesus said something, which makes my job a little bit easier. So he says, to some who are confident they're unrighteous, and he looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. So there you go. That's who it's for. Anyone here? <laughs> well, that's where we're going, so I might as well ask you up front. Anyone here confident in their own righteousness? Or looking down on everybody else? It, the, looking down is a little weak, actually. It's, it's really despising. Despising people. That, that's, that's who he's saying. It's people who despise others. So God wants to make known to us through this parable uh, the deadly spiritual danger of trusting in ourselves and despising or looking down on others. Deadly spiritual danger. He wants to root it out. He wants to look around by his Holy Spirit this morning, by his word, into the corners of our heart. Maybe find it in surprising places. Um, Probably not through what I'm saying, but just through what the Holy Spirit will do. And just get rid of it, because it's so poisonous um, and so easy to fall into. So we're going to look at why that's a particular danger, but... um, to open this passage up a bit more, I just want to draw out one particular feature. So in verse 10, it says two men went up to the temple to pray. But in verse 11, we find out that only one of them actually prayed. So two men went to the temple to pray, only one of them prayed. And the reason we know that is because actually when it says the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, actually, there's a little note there in the NIV, um, to himself. The Pharisee is, when he prays, he's addressing himself. Isn't that interesting? I think I've prayed a few prayers like that along the way. Not in, not deliberately, but, you know, maybe to impress someone or to get something off my chest or something like that. The Pharisee is praying to himself. He's speaking to himself. He's not addressing God. So he's not actually praying at all. And the tax collector, even though he doesn't dare to raise his eyes to heaven, He is actually speaking from the heart to God. And that little feature really opens up, I think, what is the most significant um, uh, thing that God wants to speak to us about this morning. Uh, The challenge is, the way we begin to uh, deal with this problem of relying on ourselves and despising or looking down on others is to ask ourselves the question, am I really looking? To God? Am I really looking to God? If we don't look at God, our whole perspective of the world and of ourselves and especially of other people is distorted. 
There's a beautiful line in um, Psalm, Psalm 36, verse 9. It says, by your light we see light. Which I just, isn't that beautiful, that scripture? So poetic, so powerful, like you can't <laughs> tear it up into little pieces and make sense of it, but we know what it means. God's light just makes everything else uh, understandable. And that's really what this detail, this passage, shows us. And when I say, are we looking to God? Are we speaking to God? That being decisive in our lives. I guess the question that we should ask ourselves is, well, where better to see God revealed? Where better to look to him than at the cross of Jesus Christ? Where his love is fully revealed. Where his plan is fully revealed. And at this point, I think, as I was thinking about what to say, you know, there's a, there's a kind of classical sermon that comes out of this passage that sort of says, I mean, it's got the word justification in it, the parable. One of these went home justified, the other didn't. And there's a classical way of explaining this passage, which isn't wrong, but what I want to suggest to you is it only takes us halfway and actually is in danger of leaving us in the predicament of the Pharisee. And, and what that parable says is, if we, uh, what that explanation says is, if we look to the cross, what we realise is, we realise the depth of our sin, which of course we do. Because when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the price God paid, was willing to pay for our salvation. We see the depravity of mankind in crucifying the Son of God. And in that, we reflect upon ourselves and we reflect that we are the ones who, one way or another, we drove the nails into Christ's hands. We pushed the crown of thorns upon his head. And as we realise that, and this is all true, this isn't bad, I'm not criticizing as such this approach. I mean, this is truth we need to hear. As we realize the depth of our own sin displayed upon the cross and the, uh, the magnitude of God's grace to us in, in forgiving us of that sin, the implication of that is when I look around at other people, how can I possibly bring any kind of judgment to bear on their life? How, how can I possibly look at someone else and say, oh, how disgusting or how despicable that person is? When God has been so merciful to me, how can I look at anyone else and not show mercy? And that is all true. But here's what I think God wants to say to us this morning. My own experience in my life and um, yeah, particularly in my own heart is when I stay there, actually that fact alone does not have enough power to prevent me from looking down on other people. Simply being grateful for what God has done for me is not enough to protect my heart from despising others in the long run. Actually, what God wants to do in this parable, he wants us to, to invite us deeper. He wants us to look at the cross not only in terms of our forgiveness, but as an invitation or as a promise of the prize, if you like, or the goal of our salvation. What awaits us is not simply that you are forgiven for your sins. What is given to us in Christ is not only that you are wonderfully and gratuitously and mercifully forgiven for everything you've done wrong and everything you will do, which is good enough, isn't it? We're happy with that, with, we're happy with that gift. But that's not all. It's not just a promise of forgiveness. But it is an invitation into adoption. That actually the love that is displayed upon the cross 
is a promise of who you will be one day through faith in Jesus Christ. When we see the Son of God on the cross, we see our inheritance. So when I look at Jesus on the cross, I see a man. He was a man. Who knows perfectly the Father's love for him. He knew perfectly his Father's love for him. That's how he, that's how he was able to go to the cross. And you know that your inheritance is that one day you will know perfectly the Father's love for you. There will never be a shadow of a doubt in your mind. There will never be a moment when you doubt it. It will so infuse your being. Every action and thought and deed will be filled with the knowledge of the Father's love for you. And it it will bring you perfect freedom. When I look at Jesus upon the cross, I see a man who, in the knowledge of the Father's love, was able to love the Father completely. He was able to give his life. Be obedient, it says in Philippians 2. We sang it this morning. He was able to be obedient to God, fully and freely. Not because he was compelled. Nobody takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. But freely, he offered his life back to God the Father. Why? Because knowing the Father's love, he loved him completely. Do you know that your inheritance is not only forgiveness of sins, it's not only that you will know the Father's love completely in every moment of your life and every part of your being, it's that you will be able to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. There'll never be a wasted word or thought. There'll never be any part of your life that isn't fruitful or to the glory of God. When I uh, see Jesus on the cross, I see a man who gave in that exchange of love, overflowed with love to the whole world. From his bleeding head and his hands, from his pierced side, blood flowed. From his cross, the spirit flowed and filled the world with his grace and goodness. Filled the world with his salvation. Who loved not just the Father, but loved us to the very end. Who, because he saw the value of you and the person sitting next to you and the Pharisee and the tax collector, And every other person in the world was willing to lay down his life out of love for the Father, but out of love for you as well. To give all his heart, mind, soul and strength in in love for God, but also for his neighbor. Because he saw them. He saw them as valuable in God's eyes. He saw the true worth of the people around him. And you know, that's your inheritance too. Not just to be forgiven. Not just to know the Father's love. I'm happy so far. Do you know what? I'll take it at that. <laughs> not just to know the Father's love for you, not just to be able to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but to look around the people uh, all around you, the person sitting next to you in the chair in church or the person who lives opposite you in your road or the person you work with or whatever it is, every person in the world, to see them as God sees them, as infinitely valuable, made in God's image, worthy of utmost love. That's what I see when I look at Jesus. That's what I don't see when I don't look at him.
When I look at him, I realise that in every second of my life that I'm not looking at him, I am deaf to the Father's love. I'm blind to, to the value of others. I'm mute. Like to praise God, I just, I, you know, I can't. I can't do it. I can't take hold of that incredible inheritance by my own effort. I'm so far short of it. I, I'm lame. I cannot act in love. I just, I'm so pathetic compared to what God has in store for me. I fall so far short. So far short. Do you? <laughs> and it's in that contrast. That contrast, that's the humility that God, that Jesus is talking about. That is the humility that God is talking about. Jesus isn't saying, if you humble yourself by saying, oh God, I'm a sinner. And that's just it. He's saying, contrast who you are with who you will be in Christ one day, and you will find the perfect freedom of God's grace in your life right now. You will meet God. He will justify you. You will see him face to face. And does that make sense so far? <laughs> it's in the now this is this is the key point in the parable. Come back to the parable. It's in this realization that that's where we're headed, and this is where we are. Now, if you look at it like that, suddenly, suddenly we realize what danger the Pharisee is in. It's not just that he doesn't recognize his own sinfulness. It's that he despises he despises the person next to him and you see those two things together show they show it's not just that he's proud of his righteousness they show that he is either unaware or absolutely rejecting the inheritance of God he's not interested in it he's not interested in the love of Christ and that's why he's in such peril do you understand So yes, he overestimates his own righteousness. His works of the law. He fasts twice a day. There's only one compulsory fast for Jewish people at the time. The Day of Atonement. So, uh, so twice, twice a week, sorry, I should say he fasts. So he goes above and beyond. He, he tithes more than he has to. But you know, these things, these laws, as Paul uh, says in, in the book of Galatians, they are a schoolmaster that lead us to this wonderful inheritance of knowing God's love and loving like Jesus. That's what they're for. And if they, if they don't serve that purpose, they are pointless. As Paul says again in Galatians, they are like, uh, they're like filthy rags. So he's like, if you like, uh, in saying, I, this is what I do, I'm glad I'm not like other men. He's totally missed the point, hasn't he? What is the point of being religious in any sense if it doesn't give you that incredible inheritance that we've talked about? There's no point. He's like a, uh, a man on a, this is a picture that came to me, on a high mountain ledge. With a precipice and a, on one side and a cliff on the other. And he's got a blindfold on. And he's deep, deep down in the precipice, you can hear the rushing of water. And he's so high up, the eagles are screeching as they wheel around him. The clues are all there that he is in a dangerous place. He's already stepped over the ledge once and stumbled and realized that he's, he's on the edge. There are boulders falling all around him. And he's saying, thank goodness I've got my backpack and my water bottle. I think I'll be okay. You know, 
It's an absurd situation. So he's trusting his own righteousness is foolish because it's so far short of this price. But he's especially, especially in danger because of this attitude towards the, uh, the tax collector. I think God would speak to us about this in particular. About using our feelings about other people as a good compass, barometer, thermometer, I don't know, <laughs> for, our own, for our, whether we're looking to Christ or not. I think he would, he would remind us uh, and say, actually, your feelings about others are an exceptionally good guide to whether you're looking to Christ and really grasping the magnitude of the inheritance and the certainty of what God wants to give you in Christ Jesus. You know, when we look at people and we see, let's say we see sin in their lives. Because of our understanding of um, God's grace, the first thing, I think, is it should give me pause to think, actually, that may not be sin at all. It may, may not be their sin at all. It may be mine. Because when I look at Jesus, I realize how messed up my view of the world is. But let's say it is you actually see sin in someone's life. You know, it also teaches us to be gracious because of God's grace to us. Isn't there a difference between a clumsy sin and a sin that's diabolical? Put it bluntly. What does the, the uh, Pharisee, what does he list? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. I'm glad I'm not like one of them. A robber can steal for outright greed or malice or through hunger, desperation, ignorance, terrible upbringing. <laughs> Uh, evildoer, I guess that covers just about everything, doesn't it? People stumble into adultery all the time. You know, there's a difference between that and someone who goes out to seduce through sheer pride. How can we tell what's going on in someone's life when they do something wicked, objectively sinful? How can we tell the motivations of their heart? We can't. We can't. Why is this man a tax collector? The Pharisee has no idea. He has no idea at all, and yet he despises him. He despises him. He doesn't know whether it's, it's through some free choice he's made or some situation he's in. He doesn't know whether, you know, he doesn't know what's going on in his life. And our, this, is, this is the point. In our own lives, we know that God very quickly and very easily can deal with those superficial sins. You know, if we sin out of ignorance, he gives us his word you know, to teach us. So gradually we learn, don't we? We learn what's good and bad, and we learn to choose what's good. You know, so many things. I mean, you know, I became a Christian when I was young, but I still had so much to learn before I could choose what was right and wrong. Uh, but thank God, he gives me his word. He gives me teaching through the church. He gives me friends to, to help me and advice and so on. He changes those things. He rescues us from, from situations, addictions, and all sorts of things. He, he, he can rescue us out of those wonderful things. We sang it this morning. He's our rescuer. But you know, the really hard work, the really serious surgery is still to be done. The pride, and the, well, just pride really, and everything that flows from that. God is still working, still so far to go. 
how can I judge someone else when I see so clearly how far short I fall of where God is going to take me? So it's in this comparison with others that the danger is particularly clear. But I think also it's just his, his failure to see the glory of God in others. You know, it's just not even crossing his mind that here is a, here's a man made in the image of God. When we take our eyes off the cross, we forget that Jesus Christ died for sinners, don't we? He died for sinners like me. He died for sinners like you. He died for sinners like the Pharisee. Why? Because he loves them. He loves them. When we take our eyes off the cross, we, we lose sight of the value of others. When we take our eyes off the cross, we lose sight of what Jesus did for those who sinned. He took their sins upon himself. So what should our attitude be when we see someone trapped in some sin and some difficult situation? He's someone we don't approve of. Yes, we examine our own hearts to see if our sight's correct. We, we do all that stuff. But let's say we find someone in some objectively sinful situation. What did Christ do? He took that burden upon himself. Now, we don't pay the price. Of course we don't. But we can act, can't we, to rescue people. We can speak. We can pay a debt. We can help someone. We can take that burden upon ourselves. But we can do something that Jesus can't do as well, as weird as that sounds. We can recognize in others the same sin that was in us, or is in us. Jesus was sinless, so he couldn't do that. When I see someone else in some sin, God wants to train me, and he wants to train you. Our first instinct, not to be yuck, or how could they, or I can't believe they did that. He wants us to be trained to respond with. I see the same things in my own heart. I need Jesus all the more. You know, it just the, the uh, Charles Wesley hymn came to mind as I was thinking about this. How long my, come on, long my imprisoned spirit lay. Thank you. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Is that right? Long my spirit lay. Um, fast bound in the dungeon. And I, again and again, I think God would say to us, when we see sin in others, just remind you, how long were you in that situation? <laughs> how long did you struggle with that? Not the superficial stuff. How ongoing is the fight in your own life? How can you judge others? How can you judge others? When there's still so far to go. So there's our challenge. There's not much in way of application today. But I think God would just ask us to examine our hearts. Do we think too much of our own righteousness? You know, our religious activities are meaningless unless they are directed towards that inheritance of loving like Jesus. They are absolutely pointless. So don't let the measure of your spiritual health be anything that but. Do I hear the Father's voice? I love you. Do I speak with the lips of the Son? I love you to God. Do I see the value of others. 
do I act in the power of the Spirit for the blessing of the world around me? When we take our eyes off Christ, we're in grave danger. Not only because we fail to realise our sinfulness, but because we are rejecting our sonship. So, a message for anyone here this morning who has not accepted Christ. Do you want what I've described this morning? Do you want to know that the Father, God in heaven, the all-powerful creator of the universe, loves you and has set his affection on you and delights in you and will do everything he can to bless you and change you, to make you everything you could be and should be? Is there any downside to what I'm saying? But he, in you, he wants to unlock the ability not only to hear his voice, but to, to tell him that every part of your being you love him too and live a life that's so beautiful and good and true that every part of it rings with the richness of heavenly blessing. That you can live a life that blesses other people so much, that enriches and brings that power and that blessing, that beauty and that truth into, into the lives of other, other people. Is there any downside at all to that? I don't think so. I really don't think so. God invites you not only to be forgiven, but into sonship, into being his child. And to us as Christians, simple challenge. Look to Christ. Look to Christ when you're tempted to value your own works, your religious things, instead of love. Look to him especially when you find yourself despising people. Look to the cross again. Not for condemnation. Not to just drive you to your knees and you can say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You will need to do that. But God does not want to burden you or enslave you with gratitude. He wants to set you free into true humility where you see really clearly in the light of the cross who you are because you see yourself now. And as you look at Jesus, you will see who you will be one day. It's a promise. We will be like him. And in that contrast is the perfect freedom of the Spirit. God. There's no way you can do it. God, by his Holy Spirit, through the blessing of Christ, will change you from you into Jesus. And that's a wonderful, wonderful promise, isn't it? Let's pray.